Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King Cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in a chronological order of publication, except for this week. This week, I'm uh, jumping to the the front of the line, um, or the back of the line, depending on how you look at it, because this is a special week, um, as you probably know. And if you don't know, then this past Tuesday, November... 11th 2014 Stephen King published his latest book Revival um, which was a fantastic book and I cannot wait to uh, get into it with with everyone Um, but at this point he has published nearly um, 70 novels and more novels than the amount of years that he's been alive on this earth which is awesome Um, now last week on on the review I published the the um, Cujo movie review, and so I apologize anyone tuning in um, who thought they were going to be getting the, the the first part of the Gunslinger review. Just so you know, when I record these episodes, I'm about eight to ten episodes in advance, so that's about eight to ten weeks actually. So um, I, I never knew exactly when I was recording an episode when uh, that would correspond to revival coming out. So at the time of the Cujo review or the Cujo movie review. I knew the next thing I would be reviewing um, in terms of recording would be The Gunslinger. Um, But then this came out, and I really wanted to make sure that I got this review out very, very quickly after the the publication itself because that's when the discourse is happening, and I wanted to be part of the discourse, and I wanted to just put my thoughts out there to to anyone that wanted to listen, especially to, to everyone that has been listening. And again, I'll never be able to thank all of you enough. Um, so I just, I, maybe you wanted to hear my thoughts about it. Um, so I, I really wanted to put it out. So those of you who are waiting for the gunslinger, don't worry, it's coming, it's recorded, it's ready to go. So it's just going to be dropping next week, um, instead of, instead of this week. But this was, this was an interesting, um, experience for me. I'm going to talk about revival, you know, don't get me wrong, um, for the rest of the podcast, but I do want to take a moment just to, to describe, oh, when it comes to a new Stephen King book, um, you know, as I've said earlier in, in podcast episodes, I first started reading Stephen King. The first book that I read was It, and I was in sixth grade, and after sixth grade, I voraciously devoured everything that he had written up until that point. So for me, reading Stephen King, it didn't include new Stephen King novels. The first new Stephen King novel that came out was um i believe if i'm if i'm getting the the order correct i think it was it was nightmares and dreamscapes and i remember specifically looking at um like a magazine ad in the dentist's office for nightmares and dreamscapes and i didn't know anything about it at the point i all it said coming soon from the master of horror or whatever nightmares and dreamscapes by stephen king out, you know, whenever, October, let's just say, or September when it was. And for those of you who haven't seen the um, the hardcover edition of Nightmares and Dreamscapes, which is uh, a short story collection that has some of the my favorite Stephen King short stories, actually. Um, it's a great cover. It's, a, it's um, a scarecrow staked into the middle of the road, and... Everything about it to me, I, I just I, I got a real um, autumn feel from it. it. Felt very Halloweenish to me. 
Um, so I was really excited about it. And I, I wasn't in the mood for short stories when it came out, so I was a little disappointed. But that cover and what that cover represented to me, um, I'm never going to forget because it just represented the possibility of a, a new experience that Stephen King could provide to me. And I didn't know what he would be able to give to me, but I was so excited for it. And then um, I, I, I distinctly remember when Insomnia came out. And that was when I was full on a Dark Tower fanatic. So when that novel came out, and for those of you who haven't read Insomnia, it gets a bad rap. It gets a really bad rap. It's a really good book. Um, and if you like the Dark Tower series, it's it's even better. But if you don't like the Dark Tower series, there's still the what is going on in that book is crazy and terrifying and the imagery within that novel is astounding so if you haven't read insomnia i strongly recommend insomnia and read and i just i remember i could not wait for insomnia and then insomnia came out and i i just i ate it up completely i loved the experience of reading insomnia and that was um like my one of the last times i remember really I think that was kind of more at the tail end of, of the first phase of my Stephen King reading career. Um, because after that, I you know, I was getting older. I was growing up. Um, I was reading more classic literature, literature, I guess you would say, with a capital L. Um, and I, I was just reading other things. I, was, I, was, I had different interests, and I was still reading. But the, that level of fanaticism, I don't think, can sustain itself. For very long, so um, I, I distinctly remember, you know, when when Bag of Bones came out, I was interested, but not to the level that that I had been before. Um, and I think that the last time my excitement for a Stephen King novel matched the experience of reading a Stephen King novel probably was Black House which came at a different phase in my Stephen King career, one that um, I was kind of, I don't know, not, not burned out. I wasn't burned out, but I, I just, I, the fire had died a little bit. Um, I think that, that Dreamcatcher had come out before, and I didn't know Dreamcatcher was coming. And I remember going to the grocery store, seeing the book on display on the shelves, being like, oh my god, I didn't realize that there was a new Stephen King book coming out. I read the, the cover and I was like, oh wow, aliens, he's gonna go into aliens. Got, you know, like four friends, you know, in the woods on a hunting with aliens. That sounds great. It was not great. <laughs> um, not a good book. It was very disappointing. I think that kind of burned me a little bit. Um, Black House came out. Black House is great. Black House to me, with the, and it's, it's not just a Stephen King book, it's also a Peter Straub book. Um, but to me, it feels like a return to form of Stephen King's earlier books. And I'm really looking forward to getting back into Black House. Um, so it's not just a return to the world of the talisman, but it's also a return to a, a Stephen King story that doesn't really exist anymore. So I was, I was really happy, really, really happy with Black House. And for those of you um, who are Dark Tower fans, to me, Black House is the last pure Dark Tower novel. To me, it is a full-on Dark Tower novel, um, and it's the last Dark Tower novel in the vein of the Dark Tower novels before he released Wolves of the Collar.
Um, and then there was just there were novels that I I just I wasn't into in the next phase, the, the phase of the the loyal reader. I was a constant reader. I'll always be a constant reader, but I just wasn't as passionate about what I was reading. Um, Lisey's story, I. I'm not a huge fan of. I liked Cell. Cell's good, but I, I wasn't like I couldn't wait. You know, it, it wasn't that Duma key. I I wasn't really invested in. Um, you know, and especially with Lisey's story and Duma key, these these I, I realized that these you know the, these are not stories. Um, and and when he had written these, I was you know in my early twenties. They're not stories for an an early twenties guy. They're they're stories for someone in in their in their middle age, later in life. They're, they're and I have no doubt that when I go back, when I'm older, there's a lot that I'm going to be able to pick up on that I didn't pick up on at that when I first read it because it's not where I needed to be in my life to fully grasp what he was tackling with. So I fully understand that, but from a reading experience. I just wasn't, I wasn't necessarily feeling it. Um, Dr. Sleep, um, you know, there was Full Dark, No Stars. There was Dr. Sleep. There was uh, Mr. Mercedes went out, you know, I, I bought them all on the day they came out. Um, and I, I just, I wasn't really, really plugged in the way that I used to. And I, I say all this because this year with the podcast I've been putting out, it's got me back into Stephen King in a way. I never left Stephen King, but going back to his works, reading them again in the chronological order of publication, and talking about it, and talking about all the Kingisms, and talking about you know the, what I believe you know the thesis of his book is about how he believes in humanity as an optimistic writer, and you know seeing all the the tricks and traits and tropes, and 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 all of his great character work, and his ability to just really paint a scene, his beautiful imagery, his his mastery at tone. His humor, even though I, you know, I, I, I make fun of it a lot, but I mean, it, he, he's funny. He's a funny writer. His appreciation of, of music, his authenticity, all of that, just it, embracing all of it and diving into all of it, it made me so excited when I knew that there was a new Stephen King book coming out. And I remember in late August, early September, I remember posting something on, on, on Instagram. It was, it was the cover of Revival. It was, it was released and. I realized that for the first time in a long time, I could not wait for this book to come out. I couldn't wait. And the day before it came out on Monday night, I felt like it was Christmas. I knew that I was going to wake up and there was going to be this experience that I was going to be able to be a part of. I was going to go to Barnes & Noble and I was going to get the book and I was going to read a new Stephen King story through the lens of a new phase in my Stephen King life. Um... And, and that was, you know, hosting the Stephen King cast. And it, it just, it was just a crazy experience to me because um, he's always been there. And then now it, 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 there's there's another part of Stephen King um, when it comes to, to reading a Stephen King book. And it's it's this, it's this, it's, it's what you're listening to. Um, it's a, I, I guess, an interactive experience. Um, and everything that he has done up until, up until this point has allowed me to be able to look at his books in a more critical lens and weigh his books against his other works. And I was just really excited at at just reading a book by Stephen King that I have no context for. I, I, I have no 
previous associations with. It was just going to be new. And I was just really excited and a little challenged because I didn't know if I was going to be able to get it done in time um, for the weekend, which is when I was going to release the review. Um, so there was just a lot. There was a lot of there was just a, a lot there. And then I went down to Barnes and Noble and I picked it up, and I picked it up um, along with the the new Special Agent Pendergast book. Uh, for those of you who are our Pendergast fans. If you haven't read any of the Pendergast novels, please, please, I know it's the Stephen King cast, but if I was going to do another podcast about authors, I would definitely do um, the, the, the Pendergast novels. What the Pendergast novels are, they are uh, um, novels written by Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child. And um, in the late 90s, there was an awful movie, The Relic, that came out, um, and, and that is the first novel in the Pendergast books. Um, and the movie didn't even include the, the character. But if you like Special Agent Dale Cooper from Twin Peaks, if you like The Doctor from Doctor Who, if you like Sherlock Holmes, if you like the, that brilliant detective um, set in this crazy thriller then you're going to love the, the Pendergast books. They're so much fun. And so I can't wait to finish this podcast episode because as soon as I'm done, uh, I'm going to to begin reading um, Blue Labyrinth. I cannot wait. Um, so it was a good, for as a book reader, it was, it was a really good day for me, Tuesday, November the 11th. I apologize um, for the, the snoring that you hear in the background. Um, one of my dogs is being extremely needy and she needs to be curled up right next to me. So I apologize if you hear the snoring. It's my pug, one of my two pugs, um, making her presence known. But anyway, um, going back to the, the experience, um, I, I was just, I was so excited. And um, I'm excited to, to be able to, to share my thoughts about Revival. So, so here we go. Um, typically right now, I, I would read the Wikipedia summary um, so I could have a foundation upon which I could build my analysis. But when I checked Wikipedia, no one's written a summary yet. So, um, so I mean, th this, this episode, of course, like any episode, and I've never put out um, a spoiler disclaimer, which clearly I should. It's just I, I was under the assumption um, that anyone listening to the, the episodes would have read the books. Um, but seriously, if you haven't read Revival, don't don't listen to this until you've read Revival. Then you can hear my thoughts. But um, if you have read Revival, then it's fresh in your minds, so you don't, you don't need the, the Wikipedia summary. And eventually the day will come when I will catch up to the Chronological Order of Publication, and I will re-release this episode with a Wikipedia summary. And maybe um, a second part where I, I uh, you know, I talk about um, how I feel about the second time around. Um, but before actually I get into the specifics of, of the review of, of um, Revival, I just, the, the book that I was reading, so I picked it up on Tuesday. Right now as I'm, as I'm um, recording this, it's Wednesday. So I finished it pretty much. I read most of it last night. I finished it just a little while ago. But um, so... Picked it up Tuesday, read it all day Tuesday. On Monday, I was halfway through reading Pet Cemetery. So Pet Cemetery is firmly in my mind, and when I'm done with this, I'm gonna, like I said, I'm gonna go read uh, the, the Pendergast novel and not Stephen King for a while, which is good for me. And then I will um, finish Pet Cemetery and then record the review and then continue onward from there. But 
I was I I'm, I'm right now I'm still immersed in all of the themes from Pet Cemetery. It's very fresh in my mind, and I don't know if it's because of I, it, it's so close to me right now because I pretty I put it down and I picked up Revival. Um, but to me, this is very much the spiritual successor to Pet Cemetery, completely. I mean, you just think about it here. Um, both novels are, are just basically they're just Stephen King's view of looking at death. All right, Pet Cemetery is it, that's what it is. Um, up until that point, um, Stephen King was you know he was writing his books and publishing, and people are going you know getting scared and they loved it. Um, but you know, make no mistake, his books were always about something. Carrie was about you know the, the horrors of humanity against humanity, you know, in the form of bullying. Salem's Lot was about the the small town being invaded by by forces outside from the larger world. Uh, the Shining is about um, substance abuse. It's about you know just physical abuse. It's really about abuse, right? So th- there's all of those things. Pet Cemetery was his. First, and I'm going to definitely get into this when we get into the Pet Cemetery review. But in the meantime, here's a little, here's a little, um, little taste. Um, Pet Cemetery is just—it's all about death. Um, it's just it, 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 death saturates every single page. It's the first time, and and of course he has, um, you know, had death in his novels. You know, I mean, he's a horror novelist. You can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs, right? So, but this is the first time he actually stares death in the face and says, I'm going to really spend some time with you and I'm really going to try and understand you and I'm going to put out all of my thoughts that I have on you onto this page. And that's what Pet Cemetery is about and that's exactly what Revival is about. Um, both about death, it's about there's just the secret power hiding behind the facade of our world. Um, in Pet Cemetery, it's about the power that lies within um, the, the Micmac burial ground. Um, here, it's about the secret power that, that hides behind the lightning. Both um, the, the major turning point, the, 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 the story plot point that, that pushes the rest of the story forward revolve around the loss of a family. Um, both novels involve the resurrection of the dead, the corruption of good, the fear of death. Um, both have the relationship between a man and his father figure. Um, so the, they are spiritual novels. They're, they're joined. Um, but the huge difference here, I would say the huge difference is in Pet Cemetery. Stephen King wrote it, I think, when he was around 36, which is the same age of, of, of Lewis Creed, the, the main character. When Stephen King wrote Revival, you know, he's, he's in his, um, late 60s, right? So... Pet Cemetery is an examination of death through the eyes of a young man, and Revival is an examination of death through the eyes of an older man. Um, in Pet Cemetery, the biggest fear, okay, for someone alive is death. You know, I, I mean, because w- when you're in your 30s, life, you start to get a glimpse of, you start to get a glimpse of uh, a finite nature to your life, but you have so much life left. You have so much life left. So the idea of it snuffing out, um, that's enough of a fear. However, Stephen King at this point in his life, he's been touched by death. He's closer to it. Um, He lives with it a little bit more than I think that the rest of us do, um, as anyone does at a particular age, because there's stages in life. There's the stage, right, where all of your friends get married, right? Then there's a stage where all of your friends have kids. Um, Then there's the stage where... 
your friends start to die and you go to a lot of funerals. And so around that age, it's, it's kind of where he, he's starting to be. So he's just, he's spending more time with it. So at the stage that he's at now, it's not surprising that whereas when he was a younger man, the fear of death was death itself. As an older man, the fear of death is not death itself, all right? But it's about the existence of, like, death not being all that there is. The because And I'll get into this, and I did not explain that very well. But in Revival, he presents probably the, the most disturbing uh, representation of the afterlife that I've ever seen. It's cold, it's animalistic, it's pointless, it's terrifying. So the fact that death is not the end, that there is something after death, and it makes death look better, um, it, it, it's just, it's, it's, uh, it's the sign of, of someone that has, it's a different kind of horror, it's a different kind of fear. It's uh, where death, I guess, could be a relief in comparison it's some morbid stuff it's some dark thoughts um and it, it's it's a little bit more nuanced than just the simple fear of death itself in pet cemetery um you know and and both books going back to the the, the comparison you know both books uh you know live by judge uh crandall's famous words sometimes lewis dead is better in pet cemetery um, being dead was a preferable option to being resurrected. Um, and then here, being dead is a better option than being slaves of ant creatures. Um, so, I, like I said, it's just, to me, it, it was it was very much still with me, Pet Cemetery. So it was no surprise that... Um, I, I was drawing a lot of parallels from Pet Cemetery while reading Revival. Um, you know, but, and that's not any, in any ways a criticism. You know, because I, I just think that in a, in a novel that, that featured music so prominently, it's no surprise to find Stephen King riffing, right, on, on some of his old melodies. And um, just one last thought. It's for someone that has struggled with addiction um, his entire life. Um, addiction features prominently in this novel and not just addiction of drugs um, because our main character Jamie is a heroin addict but make no mistake addiction is there so he's addicted to heroin Charlie's addicted to his own drug which is the to find uh, you know the truth behind the lightning and then everyone else is addicted to something else one way or another whether it's Everyone addicted to the, the, the religion, um, you know, and, and everyone's a different form of a drug dealer. You know, uh, Charlie, in, in his many guises, just, just deals drugs, whether it's salvation, whether it's just when he's preaching. Um, you know, so it's just, it's, it's very much on display. And here's the thing about the recording this so quickly, I have not had time to really put everything together yet uh, and to really let it sit and sink with every other Stephen King book that I've I've read for the podcast um, I've read the books at least two times at that point 
some of them like it by the time i get to it i, I think it's like my sixth time reading the book um so but this this is i just have my first my first go around with it um and i haven't had time to to let it process to let it gel um so i apologize i'm i'm just kind of throwing things out there without really going into too much detail because i i just i haven't had much time and i haven't had the the years in between really to to let it um to let it come together but regardless we're we're almost at at a half an hour at this point and i still haven't even started talking about revival um so i'm gonna start talking about revival now so look let stephen king is is he's good he's good at what he does if he wasn't good there would not be something called the stephen king cast uh but he he is good because just look at the the opening chapter not even the opening chapter the the, the opening the opening section here okay in one way, at least, our lives really are like movies. The main cast consists of your family and friends. The supporting cast is made up of neighbors, co-workers, teachers, daily acquaintances. There are also bit players, the supermarket checkout girl with pretty smile, the friendly bartender at the local watering hole, the guys you work out with at the gym three days a week. And there are thousands of extras, those people who flow through every life um, like water through a sieve, seen once and never again. The teenager browsing graphic novels at Barnes & Noble. The one you had to slip past, murmuring, excuse me, in order to get to the magazines. The woman in the next lane at a stoplight, taking a moment to freshen her lipstick. The mother wiping ice cream off her toddler's face in a roadside restaurant where you stop for a quick bite. The vendor who sold you a bag of peanuts at a baseball game. But sometimes a person who fits none of these categories comes into your life. This is the Joker who pops out of the deck at odd intervals over the years often during a moment of crisis. In the movies, this sort of character is known as the fifth business, or the change agent. When he turns up in a film, you know he's there because the screenwriter put him there. But who is the screenwriter of our lives? Fate? Or coincidence? I want to believe it's the latter. I want that with all of my heart and soul. When I think of Charles Jacobs, my fifth business, my change agent, my nemesis, I can't bear to believe his presence in my life had anything to do with fate. It would mean that all of these terrible things, these horrors, were meant to happen. If that is so, then there is no such thing as light, and our belief in it is a foolish illusion. If that is so, we live in darkness like animals in a burrow, or ants deep in their hill, and not alone. Okay. How how can how do you how do you put it down? How do you say, no, no, I think I'm good. I don't want to read any more of this. This is masterful um, in every way, shape, and form. It first of all, in one way, at least our lives really are like movies. Who hasn't thought of themselves as the main character in their own movie so right away this opening line this opening section speaks to something that i think that we all can um say that oh yeah i've thought of that so it makes you go yeah yeah all of this is right you know the barnes and noble person you know the the cute girl at the, the checkout yeah all of that that that's something that you know that that i can relate to that he's making the connection and he knows how to hook you he knows how to sink you know his claws into you and pull you close um and then he just starts to twist um, so here are all the people in your lives, but then there's one person, there's, there's someone that's going to pop in and out of your life, 
just randomly here and there and you're never going to figure out why and hope it's coincidence because if it's not coincidence that means that there's something out there most people would love the idea of fate that there is someone controlling everything because it speaks to a higher power and our character is saying the exact opposite and it makes you just want to say why what are the horrors um what is wrong with what is so wrong with not being alone you need to keep on reading here um it's so fascinating and of course the he mentions all right right in that opening ants 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 in a hill and of course that's going to um to come back in a very very strong and literal way in a very very terrifying way now, our, the, the person that's narrating to us is Jamie, our main character. And by four pages in, we get a really good sense of him um, and his family. So he, you know, King, he does a lot, you know, with very little. Uh, you know, one way of delivering the information is through, you know, syntax and, and word choice. You know, it, it's, a, it's a story that's narrated by Jamie, you know, whose, whose word choice, um, especially at the beginning, is it's not very verbiose. It's not to say that he's he's unintelligent, but the repeated use of the word guys to refer to the toy soldiers and the fact that he says there was stuff going on, you know, rather than being a little bit more specific, it, it just it, it, it gives me the impression that he's an everyman kind of quality, right? He's not some intellect, um, you know, some stuffy academic. He's, he's kind of like an, just an every guy. Um, and as always... King writes with an authenticity. You know, nothing on this seems um, inauthentic. And he's always, always um, providing wonderful insights into life. You know, for instance, we get um, just a great life lesson on page five that, that, that many of our, our children could learn from. You know, when Jamie's mother, you know, tells him about um, playing, you know, with his friends you know, because Jamie says, in truth, it seemed unfair to me that I should ever have to lose because they were my soldiers and it was my footlocker. When I advanced this idea to my mother one hot late summer day shortly after my birthday, she took me by the shoulders and looked into my eyes, a sure sign that I was about to receive another lesson in life. That it's mine business is half the trouble with the world, Jamie. When you play with your friends, the soldiers belong to all of you. You know, that is just, ah, oh, that's great. Um, and actually, you know, what's interesting is that the lesson that, that Jamie learns from his mother about sharing, by the way, it, it's repeated a few pages later out of the mouth of Charles Jacobs. Um, and also on, on, seven, on page seven, um, you, <laughs> it, just, it just cracks me up. Uh, he, he writes, at the age of six, I put adults into three categories, young grownups, grown-ups and old people you know just little things like that yes that's exactly i imagine how a six-year-old sees things now i just mentioned charles jacobs um i'm gonna talk a lot more about him later on but with him king has created uh, just a really different kind of villain here but he's one that i hope is as enduring as his more famous ones um yeah, I'm, I'm definitely going to talk about just Charles, specifically Charles, later on towards the end of the podcast. Um, and I'll just be biting my tongue between now and then because I just want to really dive into him. It's a fascinating character. 
a really fascinating character. Uh, when we first meet him, he honkers down to play with Jamie, you know, who who's six at the at the time. Now, at this point, Jamie is hunched over a small mountain he's made for himself, um, modeled after Goat Mountain, which is where the story will wind up concluding. So already, you know, Stephen King is demonstrating a, a symmetry uh, to the novel. And after the initial meeting, King provides a modern context onto the past because um, he has to here, basically because we have a relationship between even me saying it sounds perverted, right? There's a relationship between a man and a boy, but there's nothing inappropriate about it. It's just the preacher has come to town. He befriends the young boy. But in the day and age that we live in, immediately red flags go up. So Stephen King is very wise to reference that. um, And then kind of has fun with the associations that come from it in a very comical way. You know, with Jacob's asking to borrow uh, Mrs. Morton's youngest um, and and telling Jamie that there's a surprise in the garage he might like to see that his mother can't know about at the moment. But it's harmless at that point. It is so non-threatening. Our modern associations uh, place a danger on it. But at the time, it's not dangerous. But with that said, we can't help but think that something is wrong. I don't know if it's just because we're reading a Stephen King novel. I, I don't know if it's just he's able to imbue a danger, even though there isn't a danger. There's a hint of maybe something could go wrong because he goes into the garage. And I know that I couldn't help but think of the toy soldiers that wound up getting buried alive in in the, in the little mountain um, that uh, that Charles had poked holes into. Um, and they were hiding in their caves when it was mud and then it dried out and then all the dirt fell onto the soldiers. And so all of a sudden we have our main character now in an enclosed space and we don't know if the proverbial dirt is going to fall down. You know, you know, there's just, like I said, this feeling of menace and dread and it permeates these pages and we shouldn't feel that way because nothing about Charles at this point reveals any sort of sinister intent whatsoever. At this point in his life, he is completely earnest, completely kind, completely loving. Even later in the novel, the horrors that appear come as a result of his attempts to heal others. So he might wind up becoming monstrous, but to me, he's never a monster. And here in his early days, he's just a man, a really, really good man. And while in the garage, Jacobs reveals his model town, okay, which is so thematically rich here. Okay, so he, he reveals a model town that he presides over like a god. Okay, so just that in of itself, that's enough to give us where this story can go and, and what's and, and if we follow his arc. He's able to create light, right? And he makes Jesus walk across water, okay? And not through any supernatural means, but through tricks and through gadgetry. So here we have a symbolic god whose tricks... Um, are revealed to us, okay? He's not Oz the Great and Terrible, but just the man behind the curtain, right? So with this garage scene, it's implied that this is a preacher with less faith than he would like, someone who is just on the surface um, superficially religious. And when you look closer, you see it's a sham, just like Peaceable Lake itself. In his eyes, the whole world is just a pretend world with 
just tricks, no divinity. Now compare this with the end of the novel. Okay. Again, at the end of the novel, we have Jamie and Charles standing together before another false land. This one ruled not by Charles, but by an otherworldly Lovecraftian creature called Mother. Both of the scenes, the beginning and the end, revolve around Charles revealing the tricks of the world. To the boy, Jamie, he reveals the secrets that make Peaceful Lake seem like heaven. In the end, he reveals the secrets of Null, which make death very hellish. In both scenes, first with Peaceful Lake and later our existence, is proved to be nothing but a sham. So it really comes as no surprise that we learn that he's fired three years um, after arriving to town, right? And when Jamie's description of the events leading up to the terrible sermon, um, they're just they're beautifully ominous with lines like, I remember the sunsets as red as the blood on my father's knuckles. He describes his friend losing his hand, the destruction of his father's road rocket, the loss of the postman's son's eye, and of his brother's voice. So keep in mind that we have the loss of sight, touch, and and, um, and, and sound. Um, and with the, the dwindling attendance at church, we have a loss of faith, which is again personified within Jacob's, who uses a great visual of electrified balloons to illustrate the power of sin. But still... Okay? It's just a flashy trick. And who manipulates the electricity? It's not God, it's Jacob's. It's the balloons that the kids remember. The electrified Jacob's ladder that he shows them. As a preacher and a teacher, he's memorable for his flash, not for his content. Okay, He himself is one of his own tricks. A little bit empty and hollow. Okay, Now that's just one perspective. Okay, and I'm, I'm not, so I'm saying these things and keep in mind that also he's a good man at this point, all right? This King is setting the stage for his downfall and you can tell that there's a curiosity that he has there that's going to completely undo him, but regardless, he's still, I think at this point, supposed to be a good man. The kids love him. You know, he is trying to teach them about God. I'm putting, I'm, I'm not putting, I'm pulling from the text and focusing on this fact that, you know, he is more concerned with the the science, I would say, than the faith. But that's just one perspective. The other perspective is that with the electricity and his belief in the electricity and his fascination with it, he represents a new age, right? One of enlightenment and of science. It's a different kind of wonder than the, the pure religious awe. In his sermons... You know, he, he marries the concept of electricity with the power of God rather than adopting you know, a, a more basic either-or stance. This shows him to be progressive, thoughtful, balanced, just like his wife, who's a believer in the power of the youth, playing Beatles songs on the organ along with classic hymns. Songs okay, that are frowned upon by the more traditional townsfolk. Combined, these two are a healthy, vibrant, and beautiful couple the complete opposite of the previous minister and his wife. Here, we have a clash of ideologies, the old way combating the new way as personified by the Jacobs, with the children caught in the middle. And what happens? He is run out of town because of his beliefs. Granted, by the time he leaves town, he's soured on the belief of God, but I think that the idea of a older generation resisting a new age is a valid reading of the text. I think that it's there. But going back to his um, 
fascination with electricity, you know, we learn that he's this inventor. Um, and through his invention, he brings back Conrad's voice. Um, you know, he does. It's not the power of God. And if one were to believe in a vengeful God, uh, Charles's hubris is met with the death of his wife and his child. That's one way of looking at it. Or because he's used the secret electricity, which comes from a superpower that charges the universe on the karmic wheel, he might wind up getting punished from it. He has taken from the universe, and now the universe takes from him what he should never have taken in the first place. So the, the, the manner of the death itself of his wife and child um, is reminiscent of, of the force of this, this chaotic force. And again, um, uh, from Pet Cemetery. and again, I was just reading Pet Cemetery. I'm going to go way more into this in Pet Cemetery, But, um, you know, the, the, it, it's a meaningless death. It, it, that that's what happens in Pet Cemetery. It's what happens here, both because of a car, right? As I stated earlier, both novels deal with the loss of a child. But in Pet Cemetery, the death is presented as a flashback. Um, we're, we're not as much focused on the death when Gage dies. We're focused more on the process of mourning and what death means when we are still alive there's a distance there um and and king focuses on on the on just the machine of life trying to make us process what the what the death is whereas here we see it very very raw it's brutal um charles sees his child morris and screams where's his face Where's my little boy's face? And this might be, to me, the most disturbing thing that King has ever put to paper. The vulnerability, this tragedy, it's going to resonate throughout the rest of the novel. And to me, no matter what Charles does at his core, he's, ha he's the father who had to see his, his baby mangled. And so I, I'm not excusing him, but I think that it creates a sympathetic character through and through. So, I mean, ultimately, the tragedy utterly destroys whatever spiritualism that was in the man. And in the next chapter, King teases the terrible sermon, which has lived on in the years um, after it, it occurred with, um, with a mythology all of its own. Now, by the time that we see Jacob step up to the pulpit, it's been solidified in our minds, the very idea of it. And when Jacob begins speaking, outpours complete blasphemy in the house of God, a scathing indictment of our belief system, which boils down to the following quote on page 73. Religion is the theological equivalent of a quick buck insurance scam where you pay your premium year after year, and then when you need the benefits you paid for so religiously, you discover that the company took your money does not in fact exist. And as he leaves, he does so with a sermon of his own religion, the one based around his belief in electricity, which unlike religion, faith, and God, is a force of nature he can understand and control. If you want a power greater than yourselves, look to the lightning. A billion volts in each strikes, a hundred thousand amperes of current and temperatures of 50,000 degrees Fahrenheit. There is a higher power in that, I grant you. But here in this building, no. Believe what you want, but I tell you this. Behind St. Paul's darkened glass, there is nothing but a lie. With this speech, we know he has to leave. Um, and his goodbye to Jamie is heartbreaking. 
Although it's a Stephen King story, at this point, there hasn't been a glimmer of supernatural whatsoever. At, at this point, it's more in the vein of, of like the human drama as seen in, um, uh, let's say, different seasons. The goodbye is, is genuine. The teacher having to say goodbye to the student. The surrogate father parting from the only son he has left. Just two friends never see each other. And looking back in this scene, in a way, even though they meet again, it's not the same. You know, the next time they meet, both will have lost their innocence. They will meet again as strangers. And this here, this is a genuine goodbye from the versions of themselves that will never exist again. You know, there will be a resurrection, a revival of the relationship. And like the resurrected dead in Pet Cemetery, each time it's revived, it comes back a little bit less, a little bit less, a little bit more corrupt each time. You know, and, and the result of the terrible sermon isn't just that it forces Jacobs to leave town, but it provides a lesson in Jacobs' most faithful disciple, Jamie. He turns on his belief, and it's no surprise that in God's absence, he turns not just to a guitar, but to an electric guitar. Um, with the inclusion of the guitar, okay, King begins his musings on the musician what it means and feels like to make music. Now, until now, King has been content to include music into his works and to describe the power that comes from listening to it and letting it fill you up. But I, as far as I remember, and I could be wrong, let me know if I'm wrong, but I believe this is the first time he casts a musician as the protagonist. You know, through Jamie, he's able to explore sensations and thoughts that I'm sure he's felt and bottled up for years. Now, if you don't know, you know, King has been a longtime band member of the, of the Rock Bottom Remainders. And of course, rock and roll wouldn't be complete without its two co-conspirators, sex and drugs. And Jamie's adolescence is defined by music, and with it comes uh, the love from Astrid and later the drug addiction itself. Now, when the drug, when Jamie, when we get into the parts where Jamie starts um, to be a, a heroin addict, it, the, the novel itself, uh, it becomes an interesting companion piece to Dr. Sleep. Um, which is a recent novel in which he was able to explore the road to sobriety. Now here he turns back on that path and heads down that road in order to look in on the sensation of addiction again, you know, which has been seen in, in many of his works before. And while on this road that he takes Jamie down, that road meets him um, back with, with Jacobs, right, at a small town fair. Is it coincidence? Is it fate? Are they charged particles drawn together? It's never fully explored how they keep coming back. Jacobs thinks that it's it's destiny. Um, Jamie hopes it's otherwise. Um, regardless, Jacobs rediscovers Jamie at Jamie's completely lowest point, and now more of a mad scientist than a preacher, he cures Jamie's heroin addiction with the magic of electricity. Now, I gotta say, so at that point um, in the novel, I found myself less and less interested in taking notes for this podcast and just more and more interested in reading the damn book. You know, because uh, at this point, I can't guess where the story is going to go, what King is going to say or what's going to happen with the characters. Rereading Stephen King's books up until this point has just made me forget the experience of reading a King book for a first time. You know, all of the Kingisms aside, all of the traits and tropes and tricks and like everything I said before, there's an unpredictability all right? His characters are never safe. 
you know, um, as are, uh, say, Dean Koontz's characters. Um, and that's not a knock on Dean Koontz. Um, like many Stephen King fans, when they first get into Stephen King fans, they look in the aisle, and after, you know, K.I., shortly after is, you know, K.O., and, you know, Dean Koontz, you know, tends to go hand-in-hand hand a lot of times with, with Stephen King, so I, a lot of people that read Stephen King go on to read Dean Koontz. Um, and I'm a huge, Stephen, you know, Dean Koontz fan. There's many people out there that love Dean Koontz and cannot get into Stephen King. Um, so I'm not saying, I'm not knocking Dean Koontz, but in the majority of his works, there's a, a, a lot of his characters are, are safe, all right? They're, there's an unpredictability to Stephen King's works where there's, there's more of a danger. Um, and I don't know what's going to happen here when I'm reading this. I don't have the, the privilege of having read the books um, this, this particular book already, like I have with every other Stephen King novel, almost every other Stephen King novel, with the exception of, of Blaze and a couple short stories here and there. I've read everything else, but this going back, it's just, it was just so exciting. And so when I read, you know, a, a Stephen King book for the podcast, I've got my book in one hand pretty much. And then my, my phone in the other, and I take notes, um, on, on, uh, you know, on, on the phone. And here I just found myself not really using the phone. Not, I kept putting the phone down. I just kept getting soaked up into the, the book and I just needed to just get into it. I just needed to just say, you know, just, I didn't want to say screw the podcast, but just let the book be a book for a while. And then I can go back and, and, and take care of my thoughts, you know, and it just, it brought me back, you know, with this electric trick, with the cure of the heroine, Jamie's belief that something has taken over him with the electricity, you know, and the idea of him saying over and over again, something happened, something happened. Um, I remembered reading Stephen King's books for the first time and, and having to slow my eyes down from skipping over words so I could just keep on going, get to the next page, get to the next page. Um, so anyway, I just... I just I needed to just read for a while and kind of just shut my brain off and just let it be, let it be a thing. But going back to the story, when Jacobs leaves Jamie behind, um, you know, it, it's hard not to compare it to when they first part ways. When they first part ways, you know, it, it's emotional. They say, I love you. There's tears here. It's cold. All right. It's just a note. And then he's gone. And that's it. And then years later, when Hugh and Jamie swap stories about Jacobs, Hughes uh, references the, the prismatics in his vision and the belief that he was looking through the world into another, more real world. Our world, in that case, is the darkened glass through which we peer during life, as referenced in Jacob's early sermons and specifically referenced in the terrible sermon. And at the revival, Hugh sees clearly that in the other, into the other world, right? Um, you know, and, and, and he sees... When he's looking through, he sees that those that have been affected by Charles have been replaced with humanoid ants. Um, and I'm going to get to the ants later, but it's just such a strong image and it's terrifying, you know. And, you know, the, of course, you know, when Jamie researches the recipients of his healing, he discovers the horrific side effects which have led to, to manis and death. So, King, in the beginning of the novel, it's just full on human emotion and human drama. And then now he's really starting to get into that, that supernatural side that he, he does so well. Um, and you just need to keep on reading to see what is going on with these people that he has that that Charles has cured here, because um, clearly he hasn't cured them. Something's going on. What is going on? And why does one of the people that's been cured see ant people? It's it's just it's a it's crazy. 
you know, and, you know, there's such, um, and a lot of, you know, our ideas of revivals and the tent shows, there's an insidiousness that's there. You know, there's that idea that I think that we have of just the, the charlatan, you know, making money and exploiting people. And so that's there. And Stephen King is able to use that um, and really and draw that out. And that, that that's the basis of this story. You know, he built, you know, the entire um, uh, character of, of Charles off of, well, it's a part of him, um, off of that idea of, of the traveling preacher, um, the, the evangelical preacher just taking advantage of, of others. Um, you know, and so it's no surprise that Jamie wants to confront him about it. And earlier in the novel, Charles had referenced books that were hard to obtain. And, uh, you know, we learned that um, they weren't books about electricity, but specifically one book that first appeared in the 1978 collection of short stories, specifically the short story Jerusalem's Lot. The book that was difficult for... Jacob Charles to um, obtain uh, is De Vermis Mysterious, which translates into the mystery of the worm. Okay. Now, this makes perfect sense. In the short story Jerusalem's Lot, which I reviewed in the, um, uh, the Night Shift review, uh, it involves a small town whose religion turned sour its preacher converting his parishioners into worshippers of an H.P. Lovecraft monstrosity, a giant worm god that lived underneath the church. And here with this novel, we have a corrupted priest whose interest in the very same book brings forth not a worm god, but alien ant-like creatures. And of course, as we'll get into later on, a monstrous Lovecraftian um, mother you know, now he's going to later reveal that this book um, is only one of six forbidden books. But how fun is it that Stephen King revisits and expands upon a minor plot point in a short story he published 36 years ago? 36. I, I'm not even 36. Okay, this type of continuity, this level of prolificacy, um, it's just it's astounding. You know, I can't even imagine... You know, putting, you know, it is difficult to sit down and finish one book or one short story. Um, but to be able to have the ability to just churn out so many that you've built up such a rich tapestry of an interconnected universe that you're able to pull out one little thing that you did 36 years before and turn it, you know, into a plot point in your newest novel and have it make sense for that original story and have it make sense for this. Um, you know, it's just, I'm in awe of, of that kind of thing. You know, now we've seen uh, Charles Jacobs uh, devolve and devolve and devolve, you know. Um, and <laughs> later, Jamie is forced into a confrontation when Jacobs... You know, he basically, you know, he went from a good man into, you know, kind of a charlatan, into kind of a sleazeball, into a full-blown mustache-twirling villain, you know, capturing Astrid to be used as bait. The only thing he doesn't do is tie her down to the railroad tracks, but that's basically, you know, what happens here is he just uses her to get to to get Jamie, um, 
to him. And that does allow for a reunion between Astrid um, and, and, and Jamie. And it's not presented here with, with any false romanticism. As I've said before, King always keeps it authentic. Um, it has a reality that includes her looking horrendously old. You know, it, and it's funny to talk about reality when when discussing a book about magic lightning and, and ant aliens. But it, it would have been too much of a suspension of disbelief if she if she had been beautiful. If it was played um, as a long lost love, you know, reuniting. There's tenderness there, um, and that's natural. And and they eventually kiss. And and King writes, you know, there were no embers in the ashes, but we were tied together just the same. You know, and and th that kind of truthfulness, it he doesn't he doesn't touch upon it much, but what he touches upon is poignant. That two people who shared a moment in time um, over a period of um, months and years, um, months and years that are eclipsed in the time that they spent apart, still shared something, and it will always be there. And for this moment, they can go back to it for a second. Now at this point in their lives, it doesn't mean anything. But it meant something once, and that means something. Um, and that is so much more nuanced than just having them have just been in love with each other forever, but just distanced, you know. So when Jacobs administers the cure, it starts to get creepy. And... <sighs> It's it, from this point forward, the book gets like really good. Um, Astrid hypnotically refers to the door in the wall, the one covered with dead ivy above the broken city. It's a small line, but it's so creepy. It's a hint of another world, and it fits in perfectly, perfectly with the writing of the man whom King um, uh, quoted in the very beginning of the book, and that's H.P. Lovecraft. Okay, um, the the opening line is one that he he also references later on in the text, and that is, that is not dead which can eternal lie, and with strange eons even death may die, by H. H. P. Lovecraft. Um, so, look, I'm I so H. P. Lovecraft for those of you who don't know, um, was an author in the early 1900s, um. Or not, not necessarily in the early 1900s, but in the in the 1900s. Uh, and, and he he the focus of H.P. Lovecraft was um, his, his biggest um, legacy is is Cthulhu, um, which is basically an, an otherworldly god. So he wrote of the old ones, um, these these monstrous alien gods that existed before time itself and lay slumbering. And their existence is something beyond our comprehension. And in all of his stories that are pretty much written in the first-person perspective, his, his characters, which tend to be academic types, um, go off in, in search of something. And in this search um, or in their research, they come across fragments of an ancient time or they, 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 they come across an aspect of one of these these ancient gods and ultimately always drives them to madness because their their little human brains can't comprehend the vastity um the, the vastness 
and the alien coldness and indifference of these gods and their their existence disproves the 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 idea that that we have held about what gods mean to us and how involved a god is in our lives and has created us and cares for us and will will, will welcome us after our deaths that the presence of these and the existence of these gods um as just being alien creatures that will never understand and will never care about us um drives people to madness and so that is what he's doing here. Um, that is what Stephen King is, is, is doing. In, in fact, um, King even states that in his novel, the the mystery of the worm, that that book, it's the inspiration for Lovecraft's um, very very iconic um, Necronomicon, you know, which is the the, the cursed book. And I'll, I'll get back into to Lovecraft later on um, when I start to discuss the the end of the story a little bit more. But um, but just King, look. I, I just, it's just fascinating here because he's just, at this point in his life, he's not interested at all in one-note characters. Jamie, I'm not saying that he ever was, but it's very, very clear here. Jamie isn't good with a capital G, and, and Charlie isn't evil with a, a capital E. You know, in earlier novels, his good guys were good, and his bad guys were iconically evil, right? Now, of course, there were always shades of gray, but... There's pretty much it's all gray here. It is it's very very muddy. You know, back in the day we had Barlow and Straker. They were just simply evil incarnate. You know, there was no need for backstory or sympathy. You had Christine. You had Roland LeBay. You had the forces in the Indian burial ground in Pet Cemetery. Randall Flagg, the Man in Black, Pennywise, Overlook, the possessed Jack Torrance. But now he's come to a point in his career where he's told those stories, and he knows that life is much more complex than that. You know, as Charlie devolves spiritually and morally, I can't help but think of the father just screaming about his son's missing face. No matter how far he goes, I can't forget that charming man who loved his family, his parishioners, and the young boy that he befriended. And Jamie, in his later years, becomes a hero. Yes, he does, but he spent a good chunk of it as a selfish junkie. And he's only reformed because of the work of his now adversary, his one-time friend, the man he cried over and to he professed his love. Their relationship is complex, it's messy, it's tragic. And Jamie, though he wants to ultimately stop Charles, he makes the decision to stay, not because of a sense of righteousness, but because he wants to witness Charlie as he opens Pandora's box. Right, so it's not some, it's not some valiant hero on a hill waving a sword um, in front of the, the, the dragon. It, it's much, much more complex than that. And, and you know, he wants to stick around for the end. He needs to see now. So much has happened. He, is, he, he has gone through so much. He is now part of this. He has researched everyone that has been um, corrupted by the cure that he, he just needs to know. He needs to know what Charlie's been up to. He needs to know what the end goal is. He just needs to see it. He doesn't need to stop it. He needs to see it. Um, he needs to see the end. And King teases the end for about 100 pages or so, ending sections beautifully with ominous cliffhangers and dread-filled portents. Um, now, by the time they're ready for the apocalyptic lightning storm, the novel has gleefully transformed into a throwback horror story of a mad scientist trapped um, you know, uh, in an old castle up on the hill and the unlucky assistant in the vein of uh, Jonathan Harker, right, from, from Dracula. Now, with the lightning storm, okay, 
King is able to take one of horror's oldest tropes, lightning and rain to set the tone, and weaves it organically into the story. You know, it would be lazy if it wasn't so clever. And as the end approaches and the lightning flashes and the storm rages above them, like a true villain, Charlie refuses to reveal his plan in full, instead speaking around it, teasing Jamie about the secret power of the universe, before launching into a monologue on page 366 and 367, which spells out his, his philosophy on, on life as an older man, whereas... Um, you know, the terrible sermon had uh, summarized his life as a younger man in um, at the beginning of the path that, that led them to here. Um, so he writes, We spoke of a certain door. It's the door into death. And sooner or later, each one of us grows small, reduced to nothing but mind and spirit. And in that reduced state, we pass through, leaving our bodies behind like empty gloves. Sometimes death is natural, a mercy that puts an end to suffering. But all too often, it comes as an assassin, full of senseless cruelty and lacking any vestige of compassion. My wife and son, taken in a stupid and pointless accident, are perfect examples. Your sister is another. There, there are... They are three of millions. For most of my life, I've railed against those who try to explain that stupidity and pointlessness with prattlings about faith and children's stories about heaven. Such nonsense never comforted me, and I'm sure it never comforted you. And yet, there is something. In my experiments, I've glimpsed intimations of that something. I've seen its shape in every cure the secret electricity has affected. I even know it from the after effects, some of which you have noted. Those are trailing fragments of some unknown existence beyond our lives. Everyone wonders at one time or another what lies beyond the wall of death. Today, Jamie, we'll see for ourselves. I want to know what happened to my wife and son. I want to know what the universe has in store for all of us once this life is over. And I intend to find out. Now, he eventually spills the beans on his plan, right? To resurrect the dead. And he's a modern-day Frankenstein! And the title of the novel becomes head-smackingly clear. How could I have not figured this out? He's a mad scientist obsessed with lightning. How could I have not guessed that his goal would be to bring somebody back from the dead? And I can't help but think that King chuckled to himself when he wrote the words, She's alive! And she lives! King smartly alludes to, uh, during this whole section, to, to Captain Ahab right it just makes perfect sense um because the entirety of the novel um charlie is is chasing his white whale now i i mentioned you know him bringing someone back from from the dead and it's 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 mary fay um character that wasn't we didn't know who the character was until the very very end but um when mary fay is revived with the revival of mary fay king does his best H.P. Lovecraft um, imitation, and he does it well. Um, in fact, he goes one step further. Uh, so I, I had mentioned earlier about the, the, the how basically the, the elder gods, these these giant beings that exist out there, they're aliens, right? Um, but these these creatures these lovecraftian creatures in king's works they're worse here because 
they just don't exist in our space. They just don't exist in our universe. They exist not just beyond a universe. It's it's insinuated here that they're the ones that rule the afterlife. And the afterlife that is presented here is terrifying. Of the most terrifying things that I've seen Stephen King write. Because it's so vast and so cold and so Lovecraftian. Like I said, he's doing a great Lovecraft impersonation. It's very, very effective. It's not the first time he's done it. Um, he's kind of tackled Lovecraft before. Um, but here, this is this is some powerful, disturbing concepts and imagery. So he just presents this, this blasted world. Um, this this horrible horrible um like nothing world with cold alien stars and they're not stars they're just spaces they're, they're spaces where the 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 ancient ones live behind and this this world everyone's dead and they're, they're ruled over by these these ant humanoid things that, that that beat them and and bite the humans and eat the humans it's so disturbing and then okay so i'm starting to kind of grasp that and i'm like okay this is this is messed up this is a concept you die and this is what happens to you like there, there's been so many versions of what happens to you after you die congratulations stephen king you just came up with a brand new one that is is truly terrifying and then all of a sudden from the spaces between the stars which is a um I, well, Stephen King doesn't write that way. It comes in in one of the voids of the stars, but the spaces between the stars is um, something that that H.P. Lovecraft. Um, it was one of the H.P. Lovecraftisms. All right, we have Stephen Kingisms. This was an H.P. Lovecraftism, um, which is a great concept because you look up, you see in the sky, you see the stars, which are just you know points of light, right? You know, so existence of of just something out there and so the spaces between the stars are, are just so void and black and if you think about the ending of true detective you've seen true detective and they have you know rust and cole um rust cole and and and, and martin hart you know they, they have a conversation pretty much around the same thing but whereas it's more positive in the end you know the way i look at it, the light's winning um here in in lovecraft works it, it's not positive it's very very pessimistic that there's so much blackness out there there's so much space there there's so much darkness and there's things out there things that live in the darkness between the stars all right so the space between the stars and that's also something that has been taken um and used from an hp lovecraft aficionado by the name of brian lumley who is another horror author out there anyway so stephen king um you know he, he just he goes on full disturbing mode and he has the creature known as mother um and we don't see her we just see her leg all right and her leg comes out and it's black and it's tiny tiny by has tines on it and its claws are human faces okay that is horrifying right and then the the mother starts to come towards um jamie and them and as that's occurring the 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 revived mary Fay um has a a thing come out of her mouth and it's the face of um uh charles's son you know which comes full full um full circle here because when he started off on this path what led him down the path was the fact that he couldn't see his son's faith in his face anymore what happened to my son's face 
now many many years later here is his son's face um he he turned his back on god because god had you know done this to his son and, and ripped his son's face off he took his face away his identity and then now um in the perversion of all of it his his new god has returned his son's face in in the worst possible way so again the symmetry um is very very effective um and 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 so ultimately what all of this is about it's not just about this lovecraftian creature what it is it's about death right so mother represents death this is the land of the dead this is null mother is the the, the ruler of all of death so it's death and how does our main character win the day he renounces the concept of death he screams no he looks at this this cold vast indifferent thing that doesn't care about us that's going to take all of us away and says no no i reject you and it pushes her back and then he's able to 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 shoot mary Fay and 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 save himself you know he's haunted for the rest of his life but um but he does push back against death so ultimately it's a novel just about a man's obsession, Charles, his addiction with finding answers about death, about the afterlife, about finding what's on the other side. And it's about our protagonist who sees that and rejects it um, and says, this is not for me. You're not going to beat me. I'm going to live my life. Um, which ultimately, it's dark. It's a dark, 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 dark novel. But with that there, that he rejects it, that to me, that speaks to the optimism in Stephen King's works. Um, okay, we're over an hour now. I don't want to spend too much longer, but I really want to talk about um, Charles Jacobs here. Okay, um, look, with this guy, King has done it again. He has created yet another memorable, charismatic villain, um, and I would say he's right up there with his A-listers, such as Pennywise um, and and Randall Flagg. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, in fact, you know, speaking about you know Randall Flagg um, and and um, uh, you know, I mean, he he says, "Let there be light," um, a phrase uttered by the Man in Black at the conclusion of of the Gunslinger. Um, but ultimately, how can you not like him? How can you not like this guy? In the beginning, you know, on our first meeting, he spends time playing with Jamie and his toys. He demonstrates a patience with kids, a childlike sense of wonder, and an ability to play. But keep in mind <laughs> that the first time we do meet him, and I mentioned this earlier, um, you know, he, he he pushes his fingers into the mole, in, into the hill, right? So he's impressing himself he's pushing himself it's 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 an uh, a violation of of a sort right and his good intentions cause unwanted destruction and also upon our first meeting um our first time meeting him there's two descriptions of how he blocks the light it's a small but important character trait because he's a preacher who should be generating light but instead robs it right it's a symbolic foreshadowing of what will come um, you know, and then with Charles's demonstration of how to make the caves in the mud, King calls back to the despair and dread found within the opening page of the novel when Jamie writes, we live in darkness like animals in a burrow or ants deep in their hill. You know, the hill that he pushes fingers into, um, effectively trapping the soldiers, thematically resonates through the entire novel. 
You know, he meant to do well, but he didn't think the mud would dry and cave in. You know, just like through his cures, he thought he was going to do a good job. He thought he was doing a good deed, but he didn't realize that his cures had sinister after effects. And the hill itself, similar to an anthill, right? And it foreshadows the type of creature that will haunt our characters upon the conclusion of this novel. You know, you know perhaps the city, King writes at the end of the novel, wasn't a city at all, but a kind of anthill where the dead of the earth were first enslaved, then eaten. Going back to Charlie, um, he's progressive, right? He's a man of science, uh, as much a disciple of, of Ben Franklin as he is Jesus, worshiping the power of electricity, you know, with more inner wonder and curiosity than he does the Bible. You know, he brings the town to the concept of the future. He's a music man, right? Like the music man. And even predicts the, the evolution of television from antennas to wires to satellites. You know, so for Jacobs, electricity is a power that's been taken for granted as much as, the, as um, God's power is. The difference, of course, is that he sees himself as the wielder of electricity rather than its conduit. If electricity and God's powers are connected, and if electricity is just an extension of the divine, then Jacob's obsession has created his own hubris, his tragic flaw, turning the good-natured, well-intentioned agent of change into a fallen angel, he who thought that he was equal to the Lord. You know, and, but with that said, I mean, he, he gives beautiful descriptions um, about electricity um, throughout this um novel which are just as beautiful as as you know the sermons that he gives well basically the, the the best sermons that he gives are all about electricity you know and his his transformation is so fascinating to watch beginning as a man of faith to a stage magician to an evangelical preacher you know um you know who until at the end he's just the mad scientist uh and as the preacher you know he just he enjoys at that point praying as congregation you know and then i don't know i don't know i don't know exactly how stephen king feels about religion i know that he believes in the good in humanity and i know that he believes in what faith can provide to people i know that he likes to believe that there's something out there i don't know how he feels about organized religion but i feel as though the revival scene if he has any contempt or any questions or any or any criticisms, he expresses them through the revival scenes. Um, and and then ultimately, you know, we get at the heart of of Charlie, um, who on page three seventy three he he pretty much just lays it on the line. He gives his motivation for the entire novel at this point. You know, he and he is just so far removed from the man that he once was. Um, I mean, he's he's villainous at this point. You know, um, at the heart of every established religion is one sacred mystery that supports belief and induces fidelity, even to the point of martyrdom. Did he want to know what lay beyond death's door? Yes. But he wanted more. I believe this with all my heart. Was to violate that mystery. To drag it into the light and hold it up screaming, Here it is! What all your crusades and murder in the name of God were for. Here it is! And how do you like it? You know, it's, it's a way of him wanting to take credit, wanting to put himself in front of something that's greater than he is, to put himself on the same pedestal as something greater than he is. Um, 
so that's that's Charlie. Um, you know, I, I think that the only way that he is going to stand toe-to-toe with some of Stephen King's more iconic villains is if a movie gets made and he gets cast well and the movie does well and it's an iconic role for that particular character. This could be a fantastic movie, by the way. And this could be a great role for an actor out there um, because there's so many different versions of this character that he would get to play. The innocent man in the beginning, you know, the... The, the, the stage magician, the evangelist, and the, the man scientist. That's, that's, that's fun. That's, that's, that, that, I mean, think about all the variety that, that someone could have with, with, this, um, with this novel. And they could, this, if it was a movie, and they could sink their teeth into it. So Stephen King fans out there, um, write in and tell me who you, who you think would do a great job with this. Um, let me know. I don't really have um, an idea myself, but uh, but I would definitely like to hear yours. Um, so now we've come to the the, the time of the, the podcast where I want to talk about uh, the Stephen Kingisms, which are tricks and traits and tropes of Stephen King's works, um, as found here. The first, I would say, number one, is the number nineteen. All right, uh, we see it written on the side of Jamie's father's road rocket, um, and the number 19 is a number that Stephen King uh, uses to great importance in, uh, in the Dark Tower saga. It is uh, a very important number in his own life, so when he wrote the number 19 here, it was very, very intentional. Number two... Um, Preachers with a uh, crisis of, of faith. Um, so here we have uh, Charles Jacobs. Um, the, the first time he, he played with this particular trope was with Father um, Callahan in Salem's Lot. So this is definitely not the first time that we have seen this. Uh, and thankfully, Father Callahan's story was not nearly as tragic as, um, as Charles Jacobs. Uh, number three is car accidents. Um, unfortunately, car accidents are something that occur again and again and again in Stephen King's works. Um, from the the dead zone, uh, of course, there's Christine. You know, the, there's the whole there's the evil car. Um, there's Pet Cemetery. There's the Gunslinger. So I mean, it's something that we see. Their Dreamcatcher. It's over and over and over again in his real life and here in in um, Revival. Uh, number four, it's a sad one. It's uh, the death of a child. We've definitely seen that before in Stephen King's works. We've seen it um, prominently in Cujo and Pet Cemetery. Uh, number five, uh, connection to Stephen King's other works. So we have a couple examples here. Um, Castle Rock features prominently in this novel. Uh, Derry is referred to. Um, the, the town Harlow itself uh, is referenced in um, Under the Dome because it's it, this town is, is close to Chester's Mills. Chester's Mill, right? It's Chester's Mill. That's the name of the town, which is the town in Under the Dome. So again, this is Stephen King, and I, I kind of go more into this in my review of Pet Cemetery, kind of talking about the interconnectedness and, and how to how to put it all together, um, because they're all connected, right? But it's not as it's not as neat as they're all living on the same Earth. Um, <laughs> this is where we have multiple Earths here, because 
there's never a reference to the town filled with vampires of Jerusalem's lot, um, you know, or even Jerusalem's lot itself. Um, I I don't think that there was a vampire um, uh, issue running around, so it might take place in a universe where there was, um, you know, uh, the mystery of the worm was in a town known as Jerusalem's Lot in uh, the 1700s, but it never wound up becoming uh, uh, revitalized and then taken over by vampires in the 1970s. Um, and I don't think that there was a town near Harlow um, known as Chester's Mills that had a giant dome that surrounded it because that is something that I'm sure would come up in the events of Revival. Um, but uh, but Castle Rock is there. Um, Castle Rock is... We, we definitely spent some time in Castle Rock and as you know, that's... Hey, in Stephen King's land, that's, that's our home away from home. Um, and in a, in a nice little Easter egg joke here, uh, Jamie's first band is known as the Gunslingers, right? But they don't stay as the Gunslingers very long. They move over to the, the Chrome Roses. So, of course, any Stephen King fan out there knows the relationship between Gunslingers and Roses. Um, and then, there, of course, there, there's a, a reference to Joyland. Um and I was definitely waiting for, for that reference to come because I knew there was going to be a reference to, to Joyland. Um, Joyland, for those of you who don't know, it's a recent Stephen King novel. It is a good book. Capital G, capital B. Um, so if you like Shawshank Redemption and you like The Body, which is what um, Stand By Me is adapted from, you're, you're going to like Joyland. I think that if they made Joyland um, into a movie and it was done right, I think that it would round out a thematic trilogy. Um, so of course, like he mentions Joyland because, uh, Charlie, um, works at Joyland for a while. Um, so our, our next Stephen Kingism is Supernatural Nightmares, um, which, which we have time and time again in Christine, The Shining Pet Cemetery. It basically in every one of his works, his characters have supernatural nightmares. Um, we have the catchphrase here, um, with, um, something happened. That's, uh, Stephen King loves the catchphrase. Um, and we have at one point, uh, Jamie thinking life is a wheel, which it is just so close to Stephen King's very famous dark tower phrase. Ka is a wheel. So this, this cannot be a coincidence. It has to be on purpose. Our next Stephen Kingism, um, gifts with a catch attached to them, right? Um, as seen, um, most famously in Needful Things. And uh, homages, I would say, to his literary heroes. We have H.P. Lovecraft, clearly, clearly. But we also have Ray Bradbury. Um, I mean, at one point, even uh, Charles admits to, that he went by the name Mr. Electrico and said, I named it after Ray Bradbury. <laughs> um, and there's one other person that I, I see a lot of um, influence on Stephen King. And it's not someone that Stephen King read growing up or was an influence in his early years, um, but rather was one that was an influence in his later years. And that's his son, Joe Hill. 
um, reading this with the doorway um, and the, the mysteries beyond the doorway, and um, I, I, I was just getting a, a real lock and key vibe. And if those of you who haven't gone out and read Lock and Key, please do. Um, it's a comic book um, written by his son, Joe Hill. Um, but everything with the sermons and the, the, his, his, what he's doing here with, with religion, um, it, it just, to me, having just reread Horns again by Joe Hill, I, I, I'm just seeing some thematic connections there. And the two of them have, have written, um, together, um, before a couple of short stories. And I think that they, um... You know, they play off each other really well, and rumor has it that Joe Hill um, really helped shape the ending to 112263, which is one of Stephen King's best endings, um, hands down. Um, if you haven't read that book, really good book, great ending. Um, and if, if Joe Hill um, is responsible for the part that I think that he's responsible for, um, which I think that he is. It just it, it just makes me love Joe Hill even more. Um, but I really do think that later in life, Stephen King is a little bit influenced by the works of his son, which I think is a great compliment to Joe Hill. And I really want to see the two of them sit down and do a Stephen King, Peter Straub-styled book um, where they just collaborate on a book and just co-write together because I really want to see what the two of them are able to do. That would be great. Um, and then with the uh, with this other world with Mother, um, you know, we we see glimpses of of works from Stephen King. You know, I mean, Mother herself, she's this giant, and we don't see much of her, but like we have all these insect creatures. We have this giant insect leg. It, it's very much reminiscent of the, the 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 monsters that came out of the mist. Um. With the swirling colors behind everything, it made me think of the the, the strange aurora borealis in the Langoliers um, and the oil slick um, in in the short story The Raft. So th this novel, you know, definitely has has little 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 glimmers of previous Stephen King works, and whether it's intentional or not, and whether Stephen King is clearly referencing these other things or if these are just Stephen King, it's, you know, just a Stephen Kingism, and this is, this is, you know, it's kind of tropes that he goes back to, I don't know, I don't know, but they're definitely there, um, and that just the ant creatures made me think of Rose Matter, um, there, there's definitely a scene where there's an insectile, uh, creature in Rose Matter that, that made me think of this book, um, so, we're at an hour and a half, everybody, um, and I need to wrap up. Um, this was one of my more uh, rambling, less focused episodes, but I really wanted to just get it out there while it was it was really, really fresh. Um, I really enjoyed reading it. I really like this book. I think it's a good book. And at just over 400 pages... Um, it's 403 pages. It's it's lean. It's mean. It doesn't go on for too long. He does. I have a friend right now who's uh, 
who's reading it <laughs> and he referred to it as exhausting because it just his descriptions just go on and on and on and he doesn't have that here with with revival it just gets to the point and to the point where i think that it might be a little like he he could have given a little bit more description i would have liked to have spent more time with charles in every single one of his incarnations i thought he was such a charismatic villain um i would have liked to have seen more of him and uh but hey we got 400 pages and it was a four it was 400 good pages i'm really really happy with it um but as i was saying I, I, one last thing i'm glad that i remembered stephen king like i said his villains earlier um were just villainous and charlie is different you know, he has that backstory and it keeps him sympathetic even through the end. And I think that that's the kind of villain that he tells now. And I think that even though I haven't gotten there yet, I remember reading the Dark Tower, book seven, Dark Tower. There's a character in there um, who could have just been pure evil, but was not. And I'll get to that later. Um, and I'm not even going to do a, a Dark Tower discussion afterwards because I, I just need to wrap up. But those of you who have read The Dark Tower, there's a character that is introduced in The Dark Tower, book seven, that follows our main character over um, the landscape trying to get to him. Um, and I think that an earlier Stephen King would have presented that character as pure evil. But this this Stephen King, the older Stephen King, gave him more pathos and really explored the um, the humanity within that character that was barely human and was very insectile, to actually go back to the, the whole insectile um, stuff within this novel. And I remember being really frustrated because I didn't want this character to be whiny. I wanted this character to be pure evil. I wanted him to be a monster. Um, and, and, and looking back at it now, that to me kind of signaled a shift in the villains of Stephen King from this point forward where we, where we got a little bit more sympathy from them. Even as recently in Doctor Sleep with Rose the Hat, who just wanted to live ultimately. Like she was a psychic vampire that was just feeding off of, of people with The Shining, but she just wanted to live. You know, she wasn't a monster monster. She was just one step up on the ladder of evolution that could eat the energies from people like Danny Torrance. But she wanted to live, right? She wasn't some supernatural evil creature. She just wanted to be and live and live her life. Um, so that, and, and, and we have Charles Jacobs here, someone that went on to do monstrous things. Um, but all of the things that he wound up doing was ultimately because he couldn't handle the fact that his his wife that he loved and his son that he loved died so i think that at this point in his career stephen king doesn't care about the um pure evil capital p capital e which is fascinating so he has uh, a couple more books coming out you know he has um the Bazaar of, of Dreams, his uh, short story collection coming out um, in the spring, I believe. Um, and then he'll have the sequel to, to Mr. Mercedes, which I am not looking forward to. But uh, Bazaar of Dreams I am, and I want to see if he continues exploring this idea of, of villains as more sympathetic characters. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, I got to go. It's getting late. Um, I have to work tomorrow, and we're, we're pushing um, an, an hour, 40 minutes here. So... 
I'm sorry that this episode bogarted the 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 Dark Tower um, one the Gunslinger review. Um, for those of you that were excited, but I promise you, part one will come out next week. Um, and so I hope to see you here next week. Uh, in the meantime, please feel free to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. Um, just, just get into a conversation with this book with me because with every book that I've read from this point forward, there have been so many conversations in the 30-something years that Stephen King has been writing, right? So all of the reviews that I'm giving from this point forward, like previously, other people much smarter than me have given their thoughts. Um... But this, everyone's just throwing out their thoughts for the first time. So put your thoughts out there for the first time. You know, I want to hear what you have to say about Revival. I want to know what you think about this book and what, how you think that it fits into the hierarchy of Stephen King's other works. If it's as good as his classics, if it's not as good, just tell me. Tell me your thoughts because I want to share your thoughts on the air. Um, so write in stephenkingcast.yahoo.com and if you have time, you know, feel free to, to write a review on iTunes. And uh, in the meantime, everyone, have a great week, and I will see you here next week for our review um, of the Dark Tower Book 1, The Gunslinger. In the meantime, uh, same King Time, same King Channel. See you in the